Chapter Four of the Four Pools Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Four Pools Mystery by Jean Webster. Chapter Four. The Hand Grows Mysterious. I waked early and hurried through with my dressing, eager to get downstairs and report my last night's finding in regard to Mose. My first impulse had been to rouse the house, but on sober second thoughts I had decided to wait till morning. I was glad now that I had, for with the sunlight streaming in through the eastern windows, with the fresh breeze bringing the sound of twittering birds, Life seemed a more cheerful affair than it had the night before, and the whole aspect of the hand took on a distinctly humorous tone. A ghost who wafted roast chickens through the air and out of doors on a breeze of its own constructing appealed to me as having an original mind. Since my midnight discovery, I felt pretty certain that I could identify the ghost and as I recalled the masterly way in which Mose had led and directed the hunt, I decided that he was cleverer than Rad had given him credit for. I went downstairs with my eyes and ears wide open prepared for further revelations. The problems of my profession had never led me into any consideration of the supernatural, and the rather evascent business of hunting down a hand came as a welcome contrast to the very material details of my recent forgery case. I had found what Terry would call a counter-irritant. It was still early, and neither the Colonel nor Radnor had appeared, but Solomon was sweeping off the portico steps, and I addressed myself to him. He was rather coy at first about discussing the matter of the hand, as he scented my scepticism, but in the end he volunteered. Some says the hand, a woman, that one of the Gaylords long time ago should have married and didn't, and that pined away and died, and some says it's a black man, one of them whupped to death. Which do you think it is? I inquired. Brescia. Mars Arnold, I ain't thinkin' nothin', like it's not hits both. When one spirit gets on easy, pears like he stirs up all the others. They get so lonely, like lying all by themselves in the graves, that they're most crazy for company. And when they can't get each other, they'll take humans. The human, what's consorted with a goes. Mars Arnold, he's never himself de mo. He's sort of half-minded like Mose. Is that what's the matter with Mose? I pursued tentatively. Does he consort with ghosts? Mose was born that way, but I reckon maybe that was what was the matter with his mother, and he cotched it. That was rather an unusual thing last night, wasn't it, for a hunt to steal a chicken? Pears little hands must have did jokes like other folks, was as far as Solomon would go. At breakfast I repeated what I'd seen the night before, 
and to my indignation both Radnor and my uncle took it calmly. Mose is only a poor half-witted fellow, but he's as honest as the day, the colonel declared, and I won't have him turned into a villain for your entertainment. He may be honest, I persisted, but just the same he knows what became of that chicken. And what's more, if you look about the house, you'll find there's something else missing. The colonel laughed good-naturedly. If it raises your suspicions to have Mose prowling around in the night, you'll have to get used to suspicions, for you'll have them during the rest of your stay. I've known Mose to stop out in the woods for three nights running. He's as much an animal as he is a man, but he's a tame animal, and you needn't be afraid of him. If you'd followed him and his bundle last night, I reckon you'd have made a mighty queer discovery. He has his own little amusements, and they aren't exactly ours. But since he doesn't hurt anybody, what's the use in bothering? I've known Mose for well on to thirty years, and I've never yet known him to do a meanness to any human being. There aren't many white folks I can say the same of. I did not pursue the subject with the colonel, but I later suggested to Rad that we continue our investigation. He echoed his father's laugh. If we set out to investigate all the imaginings that came into the niggers' heads, we should have our hands full, was his reply. I dropped the matter for the time being, but I was none the less convinced that Mose and the ghost were near relations and I determined to keep an eye on him in the future, at least in so far as one could keep an eye on so slippery an individual. In persuasion of this design, I took the opportunity that first morning, while Rad and his father were engaged with the veterinary surgeon who had come to doctor a sick colt, of strolling in the direction of the deserted cabins. It was a damp, malarious-looking spot, though I dare say in the old days when the land was drained it had been healthy enough. Just below the cabins lay the largest of the four pools which gave the plantation its name. The other three, lying in the pastures higher up, were used for watering the stock and were kept clean and free from plant growth but the lower pool, abandoned like the cabins, had been allowed to overflow its banks until it was completely surrounded with rushes and lily pads. A rank growth of willow trees hung over the water and shut out all but the merest glint of sunlight. Above this pool the cabins stretched in a double row occupying the base of the declivity on which the big house stood. There were as many as a dozen, I should think, built of logs and unpainted shack, consisting of the most part of a single large room, though a few had a loft above and a rough lean-to in the rear. A walk bordered by laurels stretched down the centre between the two rows, and as the trees had not been clipped for a good many years, the shade was somewhat sombre. Add to this 
the fact that one or two of the roofs had fallen in, that the hinges were missing from several doors, that there was not a whole pane of glass in all the dozen cabins, and it will readily be seen that the place gave rise to no very cheerful fancies. I wondered that the Colonel did not have the houses pulled down. They were not a souvenir of past times, which I myself should have cared to preserve. The damp earth where the shade was thickest plainly showed the marks of footprints, some made by bare feet, some by shoes, but I could not follow them for more than a yard or so, and I could not be certain they were not our own traces of the night before. I poked into every one of the cabins, but found nothing suspicious about their appearance. I did not, to be sure, ascend to any of the half-dozen lofts, as there were no stairs and no suggestion of a ladder anywhere about. The open traps, however, which led to them, were so thickly festooned with spider-webs and dirt that it did not seem possible that anyone had passed through for a dozen years. Finding no sign of habitation, either human or spiritual, I finally turned back to the house with a philosophic shrug and the reflection that Cat I Moses' nocturnal vagaries were no affair of mine. During the next few days, we, in the front part of the house, heard only faint echoes of the excitement, though I believe that the hant, both past and present, was the chief topic of conversation among the Negroes. Not only at Four Pools, but among the neighbouring plantations as well. I spent my time those first few days in getting acquainted with my new surroundings, the chief business of the farm was horse-raising, and the colonel kept a well-stocked stable. A riding horse was put at my disposal, and in company with Radnor I explored the greater part of the valley. We visited at a number of houses in the neighbourhood, but there was one in particular where we stopped most frequently, and it did not take me long to discover the reason— Mather's Hall, an ivy-covered, rambling structure, red brick, with white trimmings, in style half colonial, half old English, was situated a mile or so from four pools. The hall had sheltered three generations of Matherses, and the fourth generation was growing up. There was a huge family, mostly girls, who had married and moved away to Washington or Richmond or Baltimore. They all came back in the summer, however, bringing their babies with them, and the place was the centre of gaiety in the neighbourhood. There was just one unmarried daughter left, Polly, nineteen years old, and the most heartlessly charming young person it has ever been my misfortune to meet. As is likely to be the case with the baby of a large family, Polly was thoroughly spoiled, but that fact did not in the least diminish her charm. Report had it, at the time of my arrival, that after refusing every marriageable man in the county, 
She was now trying to make up her mind between Jim Mattison and Radnor, whether or not these statistics were exaggerated. I cannot say, but in any case, the many other aspirants for her favour had tacitly dropped out of the running, and the race was clearly between the two. It seemed to me, had I been Polly, that it would not take me long to decide. Rad was as likable a young fellow as one would ever meet. He came from one of the best families in the county, with the prospect of inheriting at his father's death a very fair-sized fortune. It struck me that a girl would have to search a good while before discovering an equally desirable husband. But I was surprised to find that this was not the general opinion in the neighbourhood. Radnor's reputation, I learned, with something of a shock, was far from what it should have been. I was told with a meaning undertone that he favoured his brother Jeff, though many of the stories were doubtless exaggerated. I learned subsequently that there was too much truth in some of them. It was openly said that Polly Mathers would be doing a great deal better if she chose young Madison, for though he might not have the prospect of as much money as Radnor Gaylord, he was infinitely the steadier of the two. Mattison was a good-looking and rather ill-natured young giant, but it did not strike me at the time, nor later in the light of succeeding events, that he was particularly endowed with brains. By way of occupation, he was described as being in politics. At that time, he was sheriff of the county, and was fully aware of the importance of the office. I fear that Polly had a good deal of the coquette in her make-up, and she thoroughly enjoyed the jealousy between the two young men. Whenever Radnor by any chance incurred her displeasure, she retaliated by transferring her smiles to Madison, and the virtuous young sheriff took good care that if Rad committed any slips, Polly should hear of them. As a result, they succeeded in keeping his temper in a very inflammable state. I had not been long at Four Pools before I commenced to see that there was an undercurrent to the life of the household which I had not at first suspected. The colonel had grown strict as he grew old. His experience with his elder son had made him bitter, and he did not adopt the most diplomatic way of dealing with Radnor. The boy had inherited a good share of his father's stubborn temper and indomitable will. The two, living alone, inevitably clashed. Radnor, at times, seemed possessed of the very devil of perversity, and if he ever drunk or gambled, it was as much to assert his independence as for any other reason. There were days when he and his father were barely on speaking terms. Life at the plantation, however, was for the most part easy-going and flexible, as is likely to be the case in a bachelor establishment. We dropped cigar ashes anywhere we pleased, cocked our feet on the parlour table if we saw fit, 
and let the dogs troop all over the place. I spent the greater part of my time on horseback, riding about the country with Radnor on business for the farm. He, I soon discovered, did most of the actual work, though his father was still the nominal head of affairs. The raising of thoroughbreds is no longer the lucrative business that it used to be, and it required a good manager to bring the balance out on the right side of the ledger. Rad was such a spectacular-looking young fellow that I was really surprised to find what sound business judgment he possessed. He insisted upon introducing modern methods, where his father would have been content to drift along in the casual manner of the old South, and his clear-sightedness more than doubled the income of the place. In the healthy out-of-door life I soon forgot that nerves existed, the only thing which had all marred the enjoyment of those first few days was the knowledge of occasional clashings between Radnor and his father. I think that they were both rather ashamed of these outbreaks, and I noticed that they tried to conceal the fact from me by an elaborate if somewhat stiff courtesy toward each other. In order to make clear the puzzling series of events which followed, I must go back to, I believe, the fifth night of my arrival. Radnor was giving a dance at Four Pools for the purpose, he said, of introducing me into society, though as a matter of fact Polly Mathers was the guest of honour. In any case the party was given, and everyone in the neighbourhood, the term neighbourhood, is broad in Virginia, it describes a ten-mile radius. Both young and old came in carriages or on horseback, the younger ones to dance half the night, the older ones to play cards and look on. I met a great many pretty girls that evening. The South deserves its reputation, but Polly Mathers was by far the prettiest, and the contest for her favours between Radnor and young Madison was spirited and open. Had Rad consulted his private wishes, the sheriff would not have been among the guests. It was getting on toward the end of the evening, and the musicians, abandoned negro fiddlers made up from the different plantations, were resting after a Virginia reel that had been more a romp than a dance. When someone, I think it was Polly herself, suggested that the company adjourn to the laurel walk to see if the hand were visible. The story of old Aunt Suki's convulsions and of the spirited roast chicken had spread through the countryside, and there had been a good many laughing allusions to it during the evening. Running upstairs in search of a hat, I met Rad on the landing, buttoning something white inside his coat something that, to my eyes, looked suspiciously like a sheet. He laughed and put his finger on his lips as he went on down to join the others. It was a bright moonlight night, almost as light as day. We moved across the open lawn in a fairly compact body. The girls, though they had been laughing all the evening at the exploits of the hand, 
showed a cautious tendency to keep on the inside. Rad was in the front ranks, leading the hunt, but I noticed as we entered the shrubbery that he disappeared among the shadows, and I, for one, was fairly certain that our search would be rewarded. We paused in a group at the nearer end of the row of cabins and stood waiting for the hunt to show himself. He was obliging. Four or five minutes and a faint flutter of white appeared in the distance at the farther end of the laurel walk. Then as we stood with expectant eyes fixed on the spot, we saw a tall white figure sway across a patch of moonlight with a beckoning gesture in our direction, while the breeze bore a faintly whispered, Come, come. We were none of us overbold. Our faith was not strong enough to run the risk of spoiling the illusion. With shrieks and laughter we turned and made helter-skelter for the house, breaking in among the elder members of the party with the panting announcement, We've seen the hand. Polly loitered on the veranda while supper was being served, waiting, I suspect, for Radnor to reappear. I joined her, very willing indeed, that the young man should delay. Polly, her white dress gleaming in the moonlight, her eyes filled with laughter, her cheeks glowing with excitement, was the most entrancing little creature I have ever seen. She was so bubbling over with youth and light-heartedness that I felt, in contrast, as if I were already tottering on the brink of the grave. I was just thirty that summer, but if I live to be a hundred, I shall never feel so old again. Well, Solomon, I remarked, as I helped myself to some cakes he was passing, we've been consorting with ghosts to-night. I reckon dis you goes would answer to the name Amas Radner, said Solomon, with a wise shake of his head, but just the same it ain't safe to mock at Hans. They'll get it back at you when you ain't expecting it. After an intermission of half an hour or so, the music commenced again, but still no Radnor. Polly cast more than one glance in the direction of the laurels, and the sparkle in her eyes grew ominous. Presently young Madison appeared in the doorway and asked her to come in and dance, but she said that she was tired and we three stood laughing and chatting for some ten minutes longer, when a step suddenly sounded on the gravel path, and Radnor rounded the corner of the house. As the bright moonlight fell on his face, I stared at him in astonishment. He was pale to his very lips, and there were strained, anxious lines beneath his eyes. "'What's the matter, Radnor?' Polly cried. You look as if you'd found the hand. He made an effort at composure and laughed in return, though to my ears the laugh sounded very hollow. I believe this is my dance, isn't it, Polly? he asked, joining us with a rather overacted air of carelessness. Your dance was over half an hour ago, Polly returned. This is Mr. Mattison's. She turned indoors with the young man, and Rad following on their heels, made his way to the punch bowl where I saw him toss off 
three or four glasses, with no visible interval between them. I, decidedly puzzled, watched him for the rest of the evening. He appeared to have some disturbing matter on his mind, and his gaiety was clearly forced. It was well on toward morning when the party broke up, and after some slight conversation of desultory sort, the Colonel, Rad, and I went up to our rooms. Whether it was the excitement of the evening or the coffee I had drunk, in any case I was not sleepy. I turned in, only to lie for an hour or more with my eyes wide open, staring at a patch of moonlight on the ceiling. My trouble of insomnia had overtaken me again. I finally rose and paced the floor in sheer desperation, and then paused to stare out of the window at the peaceful moonlit picture before me. Suddenly I heard, as on the night of my arrival, the soft creaking of the French window in the library, which opened onto the veranda just below me. Quickly alert, I leaned forward, determined to learn, if possible, the reason for Moses' midnight wanderings. To my astonishment, it was Radnor who stepped out from the shadow of the house, carrying a large black bundle in his arms. I clutched the frame of the window and stared after him in dumb amazement as he crossed the strip of moonlit lawn and plunged into the shadows of the laurel growth. End of chapter 4